So this summer we've been looking at a, a series called Kingdom Style. And if you were on Facebook this week, you saw my gingham style dance. Uh, so uh, we decided not to show that to you first, but to show you this. Yeah, for that too. Thank you. Um, and uh, so basically this whole summer, what we've been doing is we've been looking at Jesus's greatest teaching that he ever gave called the Sermon on the Mount. And in particular, we've been looking at the first kind of 10 verses of Matthew chapter 5 where this begins. And so if you are here for the first time or you've not heard all of the teachings, this is one series that I'd encourage you to go back and listen to online because these are the things that will help you as you continue to grow in your faith. And basically, what we've been looking at is that Jesus gives these series of eight statements that says, Blessed are those who do this. Blessed are those who do that. And there are eight of them. And the first seven um, are challenging to us. But within those first seven, he finally comes to number eight. And he says these words. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And basically, what he says when he gives this, this is the conclusion of these Entire eight, he's basically saying, if you do the first seven things, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. If you're meek, if you're kind, if you're generous, if you put God above everything else, that if you do those things, the result is that you might be persecuted. When I was in high school, I played basketball, but I was a bench warmer. I mean, I rode the pine. I picked out the splinters. I sat the bench. In other words, I never got into the game. I just always was sitting on the bench. But when I was in seventh grade, I was a basketball stud. I mean, I was the stud. And in 1984, I... Average double figures. I was the point guard or the coach of the team, and I was good. And my best friend on the team was named Anthony Butler. And Anthony was six foot tall in the seventh grade, and he was our center. I was not six feet tall. I was short, white, and ugly. He was tall, black, and handsome, and yet somehow we became friends. And one of our games, we traveled to Huntington, Indiana, where we destroyed Huntington. And after the game, we showered. And back in those days, which I think is kind of cool, they forced you to wear a tie. I don't know if the teams still do this today, but you had to learn how to make a tie. We all had these clip-on ties. They looked really horrible, but you just kind of clipped it on. And after that game, we were getting ready for the eighth grade game, and we went to the concession stand. And my friend Anthony and I, we'd gone to many concession stands before. We walked up to it, and Anthony very politely looked at the man that was serving at the concession stand and said, I would like to have a popcorn and a Coke, please. And the man looked at him directly in the eye and said, We don't serve your kind here. And I was kind of shocked by the statement, and 
I think because I was so young, I really didn't know what he meant. And so I remember saying, well, well, I'm his friend, and maybe you'll serve me. I would like a popcorn and a Coke for me and for him. And then he looked at me in the face, and he said, if you're a friend of him, we don't serve your kind either. You see, the kind they didn't serve was a 12-year-old black kid and his white friend. And this memory has been etched in my mind for my entire life. Of being persecuted for trying to do the right thing. But unfortunately for Anthony, that was not the first time he had experienced that. And it wouldn't be the last. Folks, for me, that was a very small amount of persecution. I didn't get popcorn and I didn't get Coke that day because I stood in solidarity with my black friend. Now, some of you might be sitting there right now as I share this story and you might be thinking to yourself, Okay, man, that's horrible, but that's not persecution. Because when you think of persecution, what you think about is being physically abused, being stoned, beaten, whipped, wrongly accused, wrongly convicted for whatever your belief system is. But I'll tell you, for a 12-year-old kid, on that particular day, It was huge. It was huge. And I'll never forget Anthony's face. I'll never forget that look of shock of receiving that kind of persecution. Have you ever been persecuted for doing something right? Have you ever been put down because you chose to do The right thing? Maybe as a young child, you're on the playground and one of the kids is being messed with and it's the nerdy kid, it's the kid that everyone always does that. And one day you took a bold statement, rather than being with the rest of the crowd, you stood up for him and all of your friends kind of made fun of you. Or maybe someone dared you to be destructive in some way. And you thought about what the destruction would look like and what would happen And you decided, no, I'm not going to do it. And then you were called a wimp or a sissy. Maybe one of the girls in your little group that you're connecting with started gossiping about one of the other girls about the things that they were doing. And rather than just joining in and putting them down, you stood up for it. And you lost friendships in the middle of that. Maybe your boss at work verbally just rips you up and down. And all your co-workers are like, dude, if that was me, I wouldn't take it. Or, girlfriend, what are you doing? Why are you listening to that? But you do take it because you're trying to live a life like Jesus and you receive it. Maybe you decided not to drink anymore until you got drunk or to take that hit or to lie about something. And now all of a sudden that you've made that decision, all the friends that you used to party with 
They don't want anything to do with you. Maybe you could have cheated on your taxes, or you could have cheated on a business deal, or cheated on something at school or in work, but you chose not to, and now it's financially, it's costing you. Maybe you've been trying to live out and share your Christian faith with people around you. And every time you go home or every time you're around the family, you get made fun of and you get ridiculed and teased and rejected. Well, in our scripture today, what Jesus is basically saying is that if you've ever experienced that kind of persecution for trying to do the right thing, that he says, I want you to know that I will still bless that. And it's the kind of life I want. Again, the text says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the first time that I read this, this was my response. Say what? Like seriously, that's what Jesus is asking us to do. It's almost like is he implying that it would be good for those that follow him to seek out persecution in order to receive his blessing. And if you think that, that's not what he's trying to say. Rather, like I said earlier, in this beatitude, he comes to the very last one. And if you read the seven before, he says, if you follow those things to a T, you may get persecuted. Here's some of them. If you desire God more than anything else, you might be persecuted. If you come clean with your sin, if you are meek to others, if you spend time regularly with God, if you show mercy to others and you let them off the hook when they mess up, if you pursue holiness, and if you love people without limits and without end, you probably are not going to have a whole bunch of people around you clapping, going, Woo! Way to go! But, more than likely, you might be persecuted. But when you do the right thing, and you are persecuted, Jesus says that I will bless your life. Now, Jesus doesn't just give us these comforting words and then leave it at that. He also condemns the people who are persecuting his followers. You see, in Jesus' day, what happened was there was a group of religious leaders that were called the Pharisees. And they wanted everyone to follow the rules. Every rule, every ritual, every regulation, they wanted you to follow them. And if you didn't, they persecuted you and they moved you out of society. Now, the only problem was there were 613 of these. Now, just think about that. You're trying to follow 613 things. Well, if that's the truth, you're never going to do it. They couldn't even do it, but they had the power. But they ignored the most important rule, which was to have a relationship with God. Not doing something for God, but being with God. You see, I was just thinking about 
Folks, you are not created to be human doings. Doing things, doing things, doing things for God. You were called to be human beings, to be with God. And Jesus came and said, the connecting to the Father, building a relationship with Him, it is the most important thing you can do because He loves you. He desires to have a relationship with you just as you are. But the religious leaders, they didn't want a relationship. They wanted the power of religion. And Jesus condemned their hearts. And what you have to realize is that this passage in Luke, Luke does exactly what Matthew does. He gives all of the Beatitudes, but then Luke says, Hey, Matthew, you forgot just one thing that Jesus said when he was talking to all of these Pharisees. He said this, Woe to you who laugh now. You want to make a fun of people who are trying to follow me? You can. Do you want to persecute the people who are trying to follow me? You can. You can cause pain with them because they're trying to do the right things and have a relationship with me. But when you do, you will mourn and weep. And not only in this life, but in the next life as well. You see, folks, one of the things that people sometimes forget is that Jesus, got, Jesus has your back. Sometimes people want to think that Jesus is this puny little thing that we put in a box and we go, Oh, the little baby Jesus, he's the right to hear. And we pull him out every once in a while and we just don't think he's very powerful. Because the image of someone going to a cross and dying on it, honestly, is kind of a wimpy picture. Especially if you had the power to come down from the cross. But Jesus is very clear in these words. He says, woe to you. I've got the back of my people who are trying to do the right things, that even when they are persecuted, I will bless them. You see, folks, Jesus has your back. And he says, not only do I have your back, but I have a blessing for you. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it doesn't mean that you're waiting for heaven. He's saying that you can have heaven here on earth, that you can have moments of joy and peace, even in the midst of circumstances that are very, very difficult. When you're going through hard times, when things aren't going right in the marriage, when there is sickness in your family, when there is death that's going on, he says that even in the midst of this, that you can experience My joy, my peace. When you are being put down, thrown away, rejected by people at work and everywhere else, he says, even then, for theirs, yours, is the kingdom of heaven. Folks, this is a true statement. Pain is a part of life. We don't like that statement, but it's true. Pain is a part of life. There's no such thing as a pain Free life. I wish I could give everybody a pill when you wake up in the morning, you're like, no pain. Today, there's going to be no pain. But we live in a broken world. And one of the things that happens, we have about 21 people that are getting baptized, which is really, really cool. And of those people that are getting baptized, every once in a while, what people think, I think sometimes, is that once I make a commitment to Christ, once I get baptized, I'll have no more pain. And it's not true. 
Rather, as long as you are on planet Earth, folks, you're going to experience pain. Now, this is the good news. That as you're going through life, you're not alone. You have the presence of God. You have his love. You have his joy. And when we get to heaven, no persecution, no pain, no sorrow, no sadness, no sickness. But while we're here on earth, all of us are going to experience some pain. And yet Jesus calls us to a sticky statement to the big idea that I want you to have today. And you can fill it in your first fill-in there or on your app. And it's this. Do the right thing, even if it costs you. When you're going through this life and you're experiencing pain, do the right thing even if it costs you. Why? Because there's a reward. That's basically what this whole scripture is saying. Is blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. In other words, blessed are those who do the right thing even when it costs them, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But how do you model God's love in the midst of persecution? How do you remain joyful when everything in life is falling apart? Well, first of all, the thing that you need to realize is that you're not alone when you're going through this. Folks, nobody understood persecution and pain more than Jesus himself. He gives us these words, this description in Isaiah 53. He, that is Jesus, was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our sin. Jesus, more than any other person, folks, understands your pain. He was misunderstood by everybody in the world, even his own family. And yet, even after he is rejected, time and time and time again, he demonstrates God's amazing love, even to the point of finally going to the cross and taking up on all the sins of the world, all of your sins from your past, your present, and the ones that you haven't even committed yet. He said, I'll take them all. I'll take that pain upon myself. And folks, Jesus doesn't stand at an arm distance from us. Unfortunately, some of us have an image that God stands from heaven with a distance and he really doesn't care what's going on and he just says, hands off until you get to heaven. And God is not a hands-off God. He is a hands-on God. He is constantly wanting to be with you in relationship with you, especially when you're being persecuted and you're experiencing pain. How do I know that he wants to be there? There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 4 that reminds us that he experienced everything and he wants to be with us. It says this, Now that we know that we have Jesus, this great high priest. In other words, the closest thing to God the Father there is, is the second of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, the highest priest. And he has ready access to God. Let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. That's one thing you have to realize. God is not out of touch with what's going on in your life on 2016. He is very much in touch because he has experienced everything. 
He's been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all. He experienced everything that you had. But this is the one thing that was different from Jesus than any other human being to ever walk planet Earth because he was God, is this, but he didn't sin, all but the sin. And so the writer then says this, so let, hey, let's walk right up to him and get what he is ready to give, to take the mercy, to accept the help. Jesus has gone through every painful experience. He understands what it means to do the right thing and yet still be persecuted. So what does he do? When we're going through things, he wants to have us to know that he sends limitless, ceaseless, bottomless love to every single person, even to the ones who stood in front of him and rejected him. He gave that love. From the cross. It's the most amazing thing I've ever uh, read in my life. He's at the cross. People are jeering him. Everyone's putting them down. And he looks at him and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Now, if I was on the cross, I'd been like, Father, get me down here so I can whoop some tail right now. You know what I mean? But what's so cool is that when you and I, we reject him, we put him on the cross. He goes, no, no, no. I'll just forgive. I'll just forgive. I'll just forgive. Jesus is present all the time in our pain. And yet, this is what he says, even when you're going through it, do the right thing, even if it costs you. Now, like I said earlier, when we think of persecution, often we think of something that's far off. Christ followers that are in Iraq or Syria, people who are being taken out of their homes, uh, children being taken away, people being raped, sex trafficked, beheaded, beaten, whipped for their faith. But when I think about persecution here in the United States and what we experience, I think the thing that we may experience the most is when we are rejected by those whom we love. That's your next villain. Being rejected by those we love. Now, there's no doubt that often the most rejection we feel are from people in our family. Last week I talked about my brother who is rejected our family multiple different times. And right now it's kind of a two-year estranged period. We don't really know where he's at or what's going on. For others of you, though, where you feel the most rejection or persecution in your life is in the workplace. You go to work and you just feel pushed aside. I have a friend of mine who is a uh, godly man, a man of integrity. He's worked at the same company for 17 years. And yet, his work environment is very toxic. If your boss is here, don't raise your hand. But do any of you know about a toxic work environment? Raise your hand. Okay. And so he's had this toxic work environment for years. And he's rarely... Appreciated, And I said, well, is there favoritism that goes on in the workplace? He said, yeah, it's just to everybody else in the workplace. And he's, he's paid. They've actually had new hires in the last couple of years. New hires of people coming in who have less experience than he does, and they're getting paid more. I bet some of you have experienced that. He's belittled at his job. Not much respect that is given. And yet God has not released him yet from this job. 
And so he keeps going every single day. Anybody ever experienced that before? And so I asked him recently, I was like, well, why is your attitude so good when you're being persecuted at work? And he said this, because ultimately I don't work for this company, I work for the Lord. And when that came to me, I was immediately taken to Colossians 3.23, which says this, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for people. And even though in his workplace he's being persecuted, in the midst of that, he does the right thing. And you know what? He has seen blessing. Now, the blessing hasn't been pay raises, okay? The blessing hasn't been more time off. In fact, often he's the person who takes the time so that other people have time off. But this is what the blessing has been. He's had multiple different people that come up and they begin to start asking spiritual questions. They're asking about God. They're asking about why is it you act the way that you do? Why don't you go back? And he's able to have an amazing testimony and to see lives change because he does the right thing, even when it costs him. So maybe for some of you, the persecution's in your family. For some of you, it's in your workplace. Maybe it's with a coworker, a boss, somebody else. But for many of us who are Christ followers, if we take it seriously, maybe one of the greatest persecutions we experience is that as we're trying to reach out to people who are far from God, many times they just reject us and put us down or they never follow through with what they're saying. And so we keep reaching out to them. We invest in people. We encourage them. We're trying to love them. And yet it just seems like there's more and more hurt. When we first started the jar, I reached out to a guy who uh, I played basketball with at Wilson Middle School on a weekly basis. And we just played basketball for many, many months, actually a couple of years. And I soon learned that uh, he came from an alcoholic family where his dad died at, uh, his age was 19 when his dad died. And then for about two decades, he just went down that exact same path. But he was finally clean and sober, but he didn't have much connection with God. His marriage was kind of struggling, not all kind of together. And I just kept on reaching out to him. And we played basketball, and then one day he invited me to go play basketball uh, at a different place, and I did that. And then he asked me to start going to watch high school games. And when I would go watch these high school games, uh, the place where I would watch them at, he and all of his friends threw F-bombs all the time through the whole game. I'm a new pastor in the community. I'm trying to have some people like you know, recognize me. And here I am. This is how I'm being recognized. That... And I'm sitting there going, "Uh, not with them? Uh, Not with them. Uh, You know? And year after year after year, kept doing this. Well, finally I had the guts to invite him to come to church, and so I invited him to come to church, and he said no. And so I asked him a second time, he said no. And, but eventually he came, and he'd come for like Christmas, Easter, special kind of things. 
And that was kind of it. Well, he was growing spiritually, but it was at a very, very slow pace. Kind of like a turtle pace. And one day, I remember playing golf with him. And this thought came to my mind. You should ask him to serve. He's got such a serving heart. I bet if he would serve, that that would help him grow even closer to God. And so we play a few holes and we get in the golf cart. We're going to the next hole. And it's like, hey, Kenny, uh, I just wondered, would you mind being willing to ever set up chairs at the church? And he said, no. And I was like, great, he doesn't mind. He really doesn't mind. And I was like, good, I'll get you. He's like, no, I mean, no, I'm never going to set up chairs at the church. And I was like, oh. And he said, actually, I've been thinking about going back to my old routine. And I said, well, what's that? He said, it's where I stay up late on Saturday night. I sleep in early on Sunday morning. I have a nice warm bath, and then I read the newspaper. And that was it. And we played the rest of the course. And I kept thinking to myself, that guy's never going to change. He's never going to change. He's never going to change. God, I'm being persecuted because I'm putting all this energy and effort and time and money. And I'm losing it all. I'm trying to do the right thing. But nothing is being changed at all. Folks, when you feel persecuted, when you're feeling pain, it's very easy then to throw people away, to throw in the towel. But here is the key to understanding persecution. When you're going through persecution in some area of your life, here's the key. God can bring good out of bad. That even when you're doing something, that God really can still bring good out of what you perceive as bad. All of us have examples of this in our own lives. Many of us have examples of this of family or coworkers or other people where we've seen bad things happen and yet something good came out of it. Now, one of the greatest uh, passages of Scripture that help us understand this is in Romans 8:28, and it's one of the most well-known verses, but it's very misunderstood. You've probably seen it before, but it's it's often under, uh, misunderstood. So I'd like us to look at it word by word. Let's uh, read it all loud out together so we're uh, knowing the same thing together. Okay, let's read this out loud together. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. Okay, first of all, what does this say? It doesn't say that we know everything is going to work out the way that we want it to. It doesn't say that. Life doesn't work that way. Things don't always work out the way that I want them to work out. Also, it doesn't say that all things have a happy ending here on earth. It does not say that. Have you ever noticed, you ever, I, I just saw Pete's Dragon last night with my two girls. And, uh, you know, the thing I love about uh, movies is that they take you to a place and if they're a good movie, at the end, everything is good. Like, everything is happy. And there's this happy ending. And I'm sitting there, and I start crying so much. I'm watching a stupid green dragon, and I am crying. 
And my nine-year-old, she's like her mother. They don't cry at movies. They are, there's something else. Let me just put it that way. My seven-year-old's crying at the movie, and she takes the little tissue, and she's like, Dad, it'll be okay, you know? And I'm like, I don't think so, you know? And we finally get to the end of the movie. There, there are some people from the church that were like the seat in front of us, and one was a guy, and I'm trying to be like manly. And then all of a sudden, you know what guys do when they're crying? They just start going, you know, like, hey, I'm not crying. I'm just, you know, got a cold. That's what it is. But there was this happy ending with Pete and the dragon and a new family and everything's good at the end. And I wish that was the case with life, folks, but it's not. That's not what the scripture says. So what does this verse promise to us? First of all, what's the first two words? It is we know. Yeah, we know. We're not guessing, we're not hoping, we're not wishing, we're not desiring. We know with certainty. This is the fact of life. What do we know? We know that God causes. That's what it says. We know God causes. What does that mean? It means that you're not an accident. If you're here today, you are not here by random chance and you are not on earth by random chance. There is no such thing as bad luck. There is a grand designer who has designed everything. Our lives are not a result of coincidence. Our lives are not a result of chance. Our lives are not a result of an accident. You, if you're here today, regardless of your age, and sometimes you wonder, I just wonder if I'm an accident. You're not. God has had a plan. He's had a wonderful plan for you for your life, even before you were born. He's a grand designer. And this is the thing, though. Sometimes his plan is for you to do the right thing even when it costs you. Sometimes his plan is for you to do the right thing, even when you might experience some pain and some persecution along the way, because he knows that the minimal pain or persecution that you experience now, there's something greater that he's growing and creating character in you. Because when we have pain or we're persecuted, God always gets our attention. Have you ever noticed that? When you're going through pain, you're being persecuted, you're like really close to God. And when you have those moments in your life when you're on easy street and everything's fine, you're like, God, take him or leave it. Folks, we know for certain that God is the grand designer in all things, everything. Well, what do these all things include? My mistakes? Yes. Are your sins included in all things? Yes. Are the sins of other people that they've done stuff to me, are they in the all things? Yes. Are all the bad decisions that people make that affect me, are they in the all things? Yes. Is the persecution and pain that I've experienced from other people, is that in the all things? Yes. All includes all. God says I fit it all into a plan. So, he says we know that God causes all things. Now, if we just stopped right there, God causes all things. You know what God would be? A masochist. He would be as evil as Satan himself. But God is not the author of evil. Nothing that's in the world that is evil was ever caused by God. Let me say that again. Nothing in the world that is evil was ever caused by God. So what is he saying? Well, look at it, the rest of the verse. We know that God causes all things to, then what's it say? Work together for what? 
for good. Now, the, notice, the verse does not say that all things are good. There's a lot of crappy things in life, isn't there? There's a lot of bad in this world. When little children are kidnapped from their family and they're placed into sex trafficking in India and other places in the world at the age of eight, that's evil. When political leaders take money and they store it in Swiss bank accounts while their people starve to death, that's evil. When people betray other people, that's evil. When people persecute each other, that's evil. When people torture each other, that's evil. There's a lot of evil in the world. Many of you see it regularly, especially this summer, on your television. So not all things are good in this world. Cancer is bad. It's not from God. Child molestation is bad. It's not from God. There is bad in this world. But it says this, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who what? What's the last two words? Love God. In other words, what God is saying is I'm bigger than the bad. Isn't that cool? I'm bigger than all the bad stuff. And I can work it all together. You may experience persecution. You may experience pain. But I can take every bitter element that happens, put it together, and I will work them together for the good. My wife. She makes the best chocolate chip cookies in the world. She doesn't buy them store brand. She works it all together. And I've watched her before. I like watching my wife cook. Kind of turns me on, actually. Uh Uh-oh, should I not have said that? But she'll get there and she'll start mixing things up. She'll put in the chocolate chips put in the flour, put in some salt, put all this stuff in there, and it's all just awesome. Now, let me tell you about chocolate chips. What if we took all of the flour and we just went like this? Would you like it? What if we took uh, all of the salt that we have to put into chocolate chips and we just went like that? Would you like it? What if we took all the chocolate. Well, I don't want to tell you that because some of you. (laughs) But it wouldn't be good for you, right? So what you have to do, you take all of these different elements that by themselves, they seem like they don't work, that they would never fit together, that nothing good could come out of them by themselves, but you put them all together and you get an amazing gift. And God says, I can take all the bitter elements together and I will work them together. You may not see it right now, but I will work them together for the good. But I know some of you have doubts. You look at the chaos of your life or the chaos in the world and you're asking, can God really bring good out of bad? How about the crucifixion? Was the crucifixion good? No. It was bad. Crucifixion was horrible. They took the Son of God. They hit Him over the head with a stick. They spit on Him. They called Him names. They put thorns on His head. They took nails and pounded them through His hands and His feet. They put Him up as a common criminal. 
a shameless person or a, a shameful person. And you'd look at that and you'd go, that is bad. But let me ask you this. Did any good come out of that bad? Uh, yeah. That's what my daughter's new thing is. Like, ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like the salvation of the entire world came out of that. Because God specializes in bringing good out of bad. Now, friends, this first. This promise from God is not for everyone. Look again. What's it say? We know that God causes everything to work together for good of those who, what? Love God. This is not a promise for everyone. It's only for those who say, God, I'm taking all the broken pieces, all the flour, the salt, all the stuff, the Crisco oil, the chocolate chips. I'm putting it all together, God. I'm putting it together here. And I'm saying, God, I love you. I don't understand you. But I'm, at, I'm trusting you to take all the pieces together of my broken life and that you'll put something good out of it. And folks, if you're not following Christ, if you don't love God, if you haven't made that happen in your life, all things will work together, but they just might not work together for the good. And you might have good for a season, but you won't have good for a lifetime or for the next lifetime. So the choice is up to you. Do you desire God more? And will you do the right thing even if it costs you? If you do, God says, I can work all of those things together for the good. There's a story in the Bible about a guy by the name of Joseph. You can read it this week if you want. It's in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Starts in chapter 37, goes through chapter 50. And I'd encourage you to read it, but for our purposes, I just want you to tell the, I want to tell the story. Joseph's story kind of begins at the age of 17. He's a shepherd. He's a young guy. He has visions. He has dreams. And he goes to his brothers one day, and he says, Hey, God is going to do something amazing in my life. And his brothers look at him, and they go, You're a cocky little punk. That's what you are. You don't, we don't like your attitude. We don't like you. We don't like that you think you're all that, and we're not. And so his brothers decide literally to rough him up and then to throw him into a hole and to leave him to die in this pit. Die. But one nice brother, Judah, said this, no, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. Isn't there always like one person in the family that you think they look really good in front of everybody else, but you look behind, and all of a sudden you're like, he's the one that's selling people into slavery. That was Judah. That's what they did. Joseph was righteous. He did the right thing. He received favor and blessing from God. Everything's going great until one day his boss's wife charges him with trying to rape her, and he gets thrown into prison with no justification. And here we see this man's life who had honored God. Now it's meaning absolutely nothing. And you see this downward spiral of pain and persecution and rejection caused by the people he loved. But even though he was outwardly spiraling, God was inwardly 
doing something great because he chose to do the right thing even when it cost him. And pretty soon God put him in the right places with the right people at the right time. And eventually, over time, he gets out of prison. He works his way up into the government all the way to second in command. He is the prime minister of all of Egypt. And for years and years, he has all of these kind of powerful roles that he takes on with his brothers or with, with, these, uh, with the Egyptians. But one day, his brothers come to him. And at first, they don't recognize him. Because Joseph has been out in the Egyptian sun for a long time. He looks different. And he has all the garb. And he looks different. And finally, though, they look at him. And they, they remember they threw him into a pit. And they finally look at him. And they're like, it's Joseph. We're dead. We're goners. It's over. But when Joseph sees them, The scripture says that he has to go off into a room and he weeps and he weeps and he comes back and he holds no resentment and no revenge and no bitterness. And maybe the most powerful sentence in Genesis itself comes at the very end and this is what it says. Joseph says, you intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good. Folks, there are people in your life that are intending to harm you. They are harming you right now. Even though you're doing the right thing, you're still being persecuted. And it costs you something. Maybe it's your parent. Maybe it's your boyfriend. Maybe it's your girlfriend. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's someone that you're trying to reach out to. But even though you meant it for good, somehow it's become bad. but maybe God could turn it around. Because God takes our persecution and our pain and he takes the bad and he makes it good. Well, my buddy Kenny, he went back to actually sleeping in and taking warm baths and reading the newspaper. And he did this for months upon months. And then every once in a while he'd show up and I'd see him and we'd talk, but time went on and on and on. And I finally, I hate to admit this, but I just even stopped praying for him. I'm like, God, this is one that you should just straight down to hell because that's where he's going. I mean, just one-way trip. Now, see, some of you act all like, oh, I've never thought that thought before. There's probably some thoughts you have right now that you're like, yep, there's a couple people in my life, you know. But I did. I just thought, you know. And then one day I get a call from Kenny. He said, my mom has been diagnosed with cancer. She has less than six months to live. And I said, can I come and pray with you and your mom? And he said, man, that means so much. And so I went to his mom's house, walked up, went in, prayed with him, and we're walking out. We're getting ready to leave in our car. And Kenny goes, hey, 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 hold on. He said, thanks for doing this, but I need you to do something right now to get things done because I want to be in heaven one day to be with my mom. And I said, like, you, really? I, think, I, I honestly think that was my first thought. Really? He said, yeah. And we prayed right there. 
and he accepted Christ, and his life has grown and moved, and things have been amazing to see what's happened. And you know what happened six months later? He got on the setup team. <laughs> and he did chairs for five years, and I used to tell him all the time, that's for not doing it the first time. You know, there's so many times when I'm hanging out with that guy. We still play golf. We play basketball. We go out and watch games. And so many times in my my, mind, I'm thinking, God really can do something good out of what seems to be something bad. Folks, do the right thing even if it costs you. Even if you experience pain, do the right thing. Even if you're persecuted, do the right thing. Even if you're rejected by someone, do the right thing. Even if you're... Used by someone, do the right thing. Jesus did the right thing, even though it cost him. Because Jesus knew that there was a love that never would fail him. And I want you to know that that is the promise that is true as we end this series. That when we're trying to live out the Beatitudes, that what you need to know is you take those risks and those steps, and you might even experience things. It's this right here. Let's read this out loud together, all of us at one. God's love never fails. Let's say it again. God's love never fails. Let's say it with the umph. God's love never fails. And just imagine that if we went out living the Beatitudes for the rest of this fall, we were meek and we were merciful and we put God first in everything and we loved without limit. We loved without end. We forgave quickly. We asked for forgiveness from God. Just imagine what would happen in our lives and our families and our community. Imagine what we could do if we all chose to react this week with those kind of attitudes. Realizing that as we do it, that God's love never fails. Because it's true, when we do the right thing, His love doesn't fail us. And why is that? Because He loves us so much. Oh, how He loves us. And it's because of that love, I can give a little bit more space to the people around me. I can get through this pain. I can get through this persecution. Because I know I am not alone. And so I'm going to invite you to stand as we uh, close out to sing about how much love He has for you to do what's right no matter what it costs you. Just how beautiful you are in my great yours.
affections are for me. prayer team to come up. If you'd like prayer for anything, uh, they would love uh, to pray with you. So please come up and they would love to pray with you. And, you know, today we uh, end our kingdom style uh, series and these blessed things that God will bless our life if we'll do them. And they're hard things to do. But if we choose to do the right thing, even if it costs us, he says, I'll bless your life. So I thought a great way to kind of end our time together, and if you feel comfortable doing this, I'd like you to just uh, reach out your hands like this. In the early days of the church, they would bless people by people just putting out their hands that, hey, I'm going to receive this right now. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. But if you would, just hold your hands out just for a second and uh, close your eyes, and I'd like to give you uh, a blessing right now. And here it is. Lord, I pray a blessing upon my friends at the Jar Community Church. Brothers and sisters who walk the road. And I pray, God, that you would remind them daily 
that God is more than enough. I pray, God, that they would come clean with the stuff that hits their life rather than hiding it so that you could set them free. I ask, God, that you would help them to be meek and merciful to the people around them, to hunger and thirst for more of God more than anything else, and to pursue holiness and reconciliation with everyone that they see. I pray, God, that you would bless them to be people who love without limits and love without end. As you do the right thing, God, let them know that even if it costs them, that your love will never fail them because how much you love them. God, may these people be blessed today to be a blessing for others. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, next week, new series called Margin. Great series for you to invite friends to. How we get margin in our life. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place.